What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. You hear that, boys and girls? This is going to be fun. Peter O'Toole. That, that was Peter O'Toole you were doing, right? I mean... <laughs> Okay, Peter I O'Toole. Gave it sort of a shot. And Claude Rains in 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. David Lean's best picture winning epic is currently playing in a new 70 millimeter print here in Chicago, giving us the chance to see it as it was meant to be seen. Loaded with enough popcorn, pop, and peanut M&Ms to convince my skeptical kids it was worth their Sunday afternoon. Did it work? I think it worked. Okay. We'll have our Sacred Cow review of Lawrence plus the film spotting top five David Lean moments, not scenes. We're going with moments. That and more. You've got a funny sense of fun. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. The Film Spotting drinking game word of the week is epic. Director David Lean, the subject of this week's show, the director of 17 feature films, including some of the great cinematic epics, there it is, of the 20th century, Bridge on the River Kwai, Dr. Shivago, A Passage to India, and the subject of this week's Sacred Cow Review, we're going to talk about 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. And if neither of us says epic again after this point, we get to have drinks when we're done recording. I like it. Lean didn't just direct epics, of course. (laughs) I already Great. failed. We'll see how his more nice modestly scaled films fare in this week's Film Spotting Top 5, David Lean Moments. But first, time to fill up those water bottles. Our lean extravaganza starts in the desert with Lawrence of Arabia. The English have a great hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. I carry 23 great wounds, all got in battle. Seventy-five men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents. I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. I believe your name will be a household word when you would have to go to the war museum to find who Arabi was. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Adam, at intermission of Lawrence of Arabia yesterday, your son Holden joked that we were getting the 4D experience. (laughs) Yes. We're in the midst of a sweltering last gasp of summer here in Chicago, and the Music Box Theater was having trouble with the AC, so things were a little warm. Far more humid than the endless deserts of the film, but it certainly added to the sensory experience of seeing 1962's Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen in 70 millimeter. It was also, I think, appropriate for Lean's style of cinema. We'll get to some of his smaller stuff in our top five lists, I'm sure. But mostly, he was known for movies with broad, sweeping shoulders that fully immersed you in their environments and adventures. Lawrence of Arabia, which traces British soldier T.E. Lawrence's military campaigns in the Arabian Peninsula during World War I, clocks in at about three hours and 45 minutes, and was filmed mostly in Jordan and Morocco in super Panavision 
70. Now, can I stop you right there? Because I feel like maybe I was duped a little bit. Did one of you, you or Sam, try to convince me that this movie was only about three hours long? For some reason, I had it in my head that it was like 170. I had no idea it was 216. It wasn't me. I knew it was over three, but it was still longer than I thought. Oh, yeah. But that could have been the heat. Could have been. Either way, watching it, you couldn't help but feel as if you're in that desert. Sand stretching as far as the eye can see, or at least as far as the massive screen will let it. So even in 2018, audiences are eager to return to Lawrence for that visceral experience. I think even more so in an age when many of our movies are overrun with green screen technology and filmed in warehouses. That's the obvious reason it's regarded as a classic. What I'd love to hear, Adam, is if, after just watching it again, there are any other reasons Lawrence of Arabia strikes you as special besides its bigness. What are the little things, or at least the non-70-millimeter things, that Lawrence of Arabia still has to offer? Hmm. Well, there were a couple of big surprises for me this time, and this is the second time I've seen it. The first time on the big screen. I don't even remember how long ago it was, maybe six or seven years ago. Watched it at home one Sunday afternoon. I don't know what it was exactly, but this felt to me like I was watching it for the first time. And it was a wonderful experience, despite the balmy temperatures there in the Music Box Theater. But there were two surprises for me this time, one related to form, the other to content. The formal element is the way he cuts between scenes, simply his transitions, like throw out all the all the grand shots and the epic scale of it all, the grandeur of it all, just those transitions. And some people might be listening who know Lean's films well and thinking, really, that was a surprise for you. That's kind of Lean's thing. But I wasn't aware of that going into Lawrence of Arabia, despite the films I've seen. Looking back at my notes for Dr. Zhivago when we reviewed that here on the show and preparing for the top five, that became more evident to me. But I hadn't done either of those things before I saw Lawrence this weekend. And I was just blown away by the cutting. And it's so much more than just the really famous match cut near the beginning that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more as we get into the show. But the use of sound in those cuts, the way we get a photograph, the reporter is taking a picture of Lawrence and the flash the cut comes right on that flash and we get that burst of light and sound and then that matches the burst of sound of a horse galloping in the next shot as a horse with a messenger on board is coming with a message for Lawrence. And maybe the more showy one, and the film is just full of these great touches, but the more showy one being where that same reporter is showing his business card to one of Prince Faisal's men and then in the next shot, that card is in Prince Faisal's hand. So maybe minutes passed, it might have been hours that passed, or maybe even a whole day, and it's all gone simply in one cut. And I wonder if there are people listening, many filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers out there who have maybe never felt compelled to study Lean. Maybe they had a perception of his style of filmmaking as old-fashioned and on this grand scale that doesn't appeal to them. And Based on stuff like that, Josh, they're missing out because those editing choices are just great storytelling that I think apply to all cinema, no matter how big or small. Well, they feel very modern to me in watching it as well. It struck me as something that maybe you just see more often now in contemporary films and in the moment does seem out of place with something that's regarded as maybe you hear about the running time and, and you know that a lot of it does is the tracing of travelers across vast landscapes. And I think there are good reasons for that, but I would never describe this as a languid film no. or that it drags in any way. And I think a big reason for that are some of those cuts that you picked up on for sure. The content surprise for me, 
though it does ultimately dictate so much of the form as well, is how sad the movie is. Did you remember how sad Lawrence of Arabia was, how complicated and how tragic a figure Lawrence really is? I did not at all because I think I saw this the last time when I was much younger than I initially thought. I at one point thought I had seen this in a restoration on the big screen before, and maybe I did in in the 90s or the 80s. I'll have to look when that happened. But really what I think I was remembering was seeing it on television because my picture was just of Lawrence the Adventure hmm. as somebody – a small boy would look up to and think, I want to be like that guy. You know, I want to have these adventures that he had. And I had completely forgotten about the mournfulness. Now, it did strike me as very much of a piece with Dr. Zhivago. Yeah, it's a totally. huge element. And that's a film, as you mentioned, we just saw for the first time in the last few years. I think Bridge on the River Kwai, too. Yeah. You can make elements to Colonel Nicholson make connections. For sure. But um, Lawrence shares a lot of tracking of images over the results of warfare, the devastation, the loss that Zhivago has. And uh, it really struck me that even in the characterization of Lawrence, there's definitely a a tragic element that I had forgotten. Yeah, I think I still thought of him even having seen the film, as I said, six or seven years ago, as this kind of colonial heroic figure and that the film was going to be this affirmation of what a proper Englishman is capable of with the right education and the right spirit. And not only does the movie constantly subvert those notions, any idea that he's this kind of white savior who is going to deliver freedom to the savage Arabs is absurd, even though at one point that's what Lawrence states as his own mission. But he's a broken man, a totally broken man by the end of this movie. And actually, well before the end of the movie, I keep thinking about O'Toole's demeanor, everything about his performance on his first trip back to the British base in Cairo after he's kind of the conquering hero. And he comes back, he's covered in sand and dirt, he's exhausted, he's wearing clothes that aren't natural to him, aren't natural to this environment at the British base, and yet he's comfortable, he's totally in command of himself, he's talking to the general, General Allenby, with his leg up on the fountain, and he's dictating the terms of everything. Even if he's probably not as in control as he'd like to think he is, he does have that kind of authority. And then you compare that to his return to Cairo. The uniform now doesn't fit. This is much later in the film. He almost looks like a kid playing dress-up as a soldier. You know, the the legs don't go all the way down to the to the shoe there, and he's shaky. He is suffering from some kind of trauma at this point, and he even moves awkwardly like a kid who doesn't know how to behave around these men. And, of course, then we can go to the very end of the film when he's around his own people again at the base in Damascus, and Prince Faisal played by Alec Guinness here, says what is undoubtedly true, something like what he owes him is immeasurable. But Lawrence doesn't even hear it. He's walking out of the room. He's not even in earshot when he says it. And it's hardly a moment of triumph. So I think back to the prologue, the beginning of the film, where it opens with his death. And a reporter's asking questions. Did people know him? How well did they know him? Give us a comment about him. And one of the men questions whether or not he really deserved to be buried there, I guess, at Westminster, right, with all that pomp and circumstance. And I really took that at first here as just that clever device. Okay, so now Lean's going to show us how he really was worth it, it. why he really did deserve it. And maybe some aren't going to fully appreciate his legacy, but now as viewers, we're going to get to see the truth. But the truth really here, like Lawrence himself, I think Faisal says it at one point, he says that Lawrence is a double-edged sword. And I didn't expect Lean 
to make the sword so sharp on both sides. So that content element you're talking about is one of those smaller things or newer things maybe that was revealed to me as well. And it's this demythologizing of British exceptionalism. Yeah. Um, it's something that is very much at the heart of Bridge on the River Kwai, which I watched for the very first time. So it's fresh in my memory for this show. And that surprised me there how harshly it deconstructs that myth in its final moments. And here it's more of a gradual, eventual wearing down of it. Like it's, it's like watching the sand eat away at this idea of Lawrence as this British military hero and also as this savior to the people in Arabia. It cuts down on both of those things. And, and I think the other thing I really appreciate on this visit that's a little bit smaller, although it's a big performance in a lot of ways, is O'Toole and what he's doing and the way he's eager to embrace the tragic element Mm -hmm. of this character and the ways you were talking about. It's so interesting how ego becomes his downfall, but in a really intricate way. It's it's not just that he takes on more than he can handle and fails. In a way... It's the problem is that he's too successful, yeah. uh, you know, as a military leader. Mm-hmm. What leads to his downfall is that his ego makes him susceptible to his superior's manipulation. Yeah. And we're watching. Those are terribly painful scenes when he comes in from the battlefield broken, asking to be let free from all of this. And all it takes is his superior to inflate his pride a little bit and yeah. say how great he is at this and how they need him and, and how only he would be capable of uniting these tribes and all this stuff. And he turns on a dime, marches right back into battle yeah. where he's damaged even more. And, and we see that at least two times in the film. And it's it was just a really startling way of handling this character. I think O'Toole, too, is... You know, there's something about the images of him when you see a still from Lawrence of Arabia where it almost looks silly because his eyes are so blazing blue. Yes. His hair hair is so so blonde. blonde, The robe is so white and the gold band on the robe holding the the headpiece on that he looks like he's wearing a silly costume. And it isn't until you see it in the full context of the film, you understand that it's because Lawrence is the warrior as performer. It is a costume that he's wearing. And he has a very um, flamboyant, theatrical way of carrying himself on the battlefield. He's a very surface projection. His face even ripples and quivers to project his emotions. It's like he's on the stage before the men that he's leading. And it, it really does work. It makes you understand why others want to follow this guy and why his unique presentation sets him apart from all the other people in this area and makes him someone that people are willing to, in some cases, some of the tribes are doing it for more uh, mercenary reasons, but others are following him because they think he is the only one capable of this. Yeah. You said what sets him apart. That's such a huge part of this movie. And it is inherent in O'Toole's performance. I think at its core, this is a movie about a character in identity crisis. And the crux of that crisis, the crux of Lawrence's dilemma is the way he really is this misfit around his own people, the country he comes from, and even to an extent around his adopted people, even if he believes he's more comfortable there around the Arab tribes, and that he can be this one man. He can at once simultaneously be extraordinary and ordinary is really what this movie, I think, is trying to explore and and get at. The man who, a fellow British soldier at one point, I love this touch here, he can shake his hand because he's honored to meet him, right? And 
Lawrence even says to him, haven't we met before? We know that they have met mm-hmm. before, really in the previous scene or a couple scenes prior. And it's a scene at the hospital where he doesn't recognize Lawrence clearly. But that same man admonishes him for the ridiculousness, the horror of the sight of this hospital where there are a bunch of Turkish soldiers who were wounded and he kind of holds him responsible. The fact that he can be that exact same man at one time, that he embodies that contradiction is really striking here. And I think you're absolutely right that Lean in scenes like that is clearly commenting on the types of myths we all are susceptible to create for figures like Lawrence. Uh, Mr. Bentley, you must know as much about Colonel Lawrence as anybody does. Yes, it was my privilege to know him, to make him known to the world. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. Thank you. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. You, sir, who are you? My name is Jackson Bentley. Well, whoever you are, I overheard your last remark, and I take the gravest possible exception. He was a very great man. Did you know him? No, sir, I can't claim to have known him. I once had the honor to shake his hand in Damascus. Well, that's the question worth asking, I think, is we get that prologue after his death of various people offering various opinions of him. And you wonder whose perspective does the rest of the film proceed as? Because it doesn't really jump back and forth. I almost wonder if the viewpoint we get is Omar Sharif's. Uh, He seems to be the, and he is, a leader of one of these tribes Mm -hmm. that Lawrence attempts to unite to battle the Turks. He seems to be, he's certainly a man of conviction. He participates with Lawrence to a degree, but also holds back for reasons of his own at certain points, calls him out on things at certain points. He's the closest thing, I think, to the movie's conscience. Yeah. Uh, And he's a guy who's enthralled with Lawrence in some moments and also utterly distraught by other actions he takes. And it's almost like he's not there in that opening Mm -hmm. funeral sequence, but I feel like his voice or his eyes are the ones that carry us through the rest of the film. No, I think that's a great point. And Lawrence starts as the conscience of the film, but I think that Omar Sharif's Sharif Ali character does become that. There's a moment that encapsulates that too perfectly. I think one of my favorite moments in the film is the one where they have lit up the the Turks, um, they're being bombed heavily. And he says, Sharif Ali says, God help the men who lie under that. And Lawrence's response is, they're Turks. Almost as if, well, what do you care? Yeah. And then Sharif says back to him, God help them. He reiterates, God help them. And that harkens back to their very first meeting where that great, one of the best character introductions, we'll just say for now, in the history of cinema, when we meet Sharif Ali riding up in the desert as Lawrence is there at the well with his guide, a guide from another tribe, and there is a confrontation there. There it's Lawrence chastising Sharif for killing his guide and for having diminished that man and saying that, He's less than he's nobody. He's basically inhuman. Now it's now it's completely reversed. And that that shows you how far Lawrence has fallen from the beginning of the film. Yeah, And it also deflates what I like about that scene, which we will get into in detail. I can guarantee you when we get to our list is that it's already undercutting Lawrence there as sort of the the woke savior who's going to come in to this land and prove to everyone else how they should act. He's trying to lay down his own moral law. Mm -hmm. And also it's uh, the epitome of 
the previous moments with his guide where he's declaring him to be a best friend. He gives him the gift of his gun to show how gracious he is. He, mm-hmm. he tries to choke down his food and say how delicious it, yeah. it is, even though it's clear on his face that it's not. And already you see this guy putting on an act um, that he's not going to be able to fully sustain. The moment, too, that I wanted to ask you about, I think you really can't talk about this film without bringing it up, is the problematic part of seeing Alec Guinness and seeing Anthony Quinn, obviously in quote unquote brown face playing Arabs, though clearly not. And the one thing that really stood out to me here, Josh, is that you can sort of talk about this whole thing is under this umbrella of cultural appropriation, the clothing, the look, even when Lawrence, you mentioned in performance, how about that moment when he gets the robe from them, when he basically is is kind of brought into the tribe and they say, you're one of us, and they give him the clothing to wear, and he goes off to his own little space in the desert yeah. and starts twirling around. Yeah. He, feels, he feels so gratified that he gets it and that uh, now, uh, I don't know if it's a case of him feeling like this is what he was always meant to be wearing or it is just the kind of ego boost that maybe he needed there, but the way he twirls around almost like a kid in a Halloween costume that he adores. And the whole film, though, is ultimately about that struggle, the sort of struggle of cultural appropriation, which is something I didn't think about at all, that Lawrence, as someone who is genuinely caught between two worlds, and we understand that struggle is something I didn't expect from the film either. Like, we don't have to like, and we can, from this vantage point, certainly criticize his approach to trying to bring freedom to these people and and how it served him ultimately and how it served England ultimately. But I think the movie does give us enough to make us realize that we can't completely dismiss his intentions. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think the movie is also, because it is critical of those intentions, I think it does work and it plays better today than maybe some of that casting. I do like that. If there's a distinction here, it might be that, yes, it's miscasting. And certainly today you would hope a film would never make these choices. But in the portrayals, I like particularly what Guinness brings Mm -hmm. to Faisal, which is um, a king who knows in some ways in terms of resources, he's outmatched, but also in terms of he's a politician. Yeah. And he's very wily. And he is also one of these, technically, a superior of Lawrence who manipulates him yes, and uses him for his own purposes. Uh, and so I, I think Guinness is good here. Uh, you know, Quinn uh, is, as Quinn can be, a little much. Yeah. <laughs> his best moment might be that twirling in the desert scene because— Where he surprises him. He surprises him and deflates all of that mm-hmm. and, and laughs at him and allows us to laugh a little bit um, at uh, at Lawrence maybe taking a step too far there in, in not— humbly accepting this gift, but but trying to take it a step further. Now, I do sometimes struggle with British accents when I can't completely make out every word they're saying. And it didn't help that at least to my ears, the music box volume was not that loud. Yeah, so I found I it actually, a little quiet too. I mean, at home, I would have had the subtitles on the entire time. So maybe I missed something here. But one of the scenes, I'm curious for your take on it, because one of the sequences that didn't make much sense to me as I viewed it this past weekend, was when he goes into Dara, I think. And it's the moment that then is this traumatic moment as he is beaten and he becomes, or really that kind of precipitates the broken man that he becomes. But I never fully grasped exactly why he was going there. I think it's something about scouting the enemy city, but 
There's that was also this, my impression. There's also yeah. this suggestion that he's doing it, that maybe it is about his ego on some level, that he thinks he is now so natural. He, he believes that he is one of these Arabs and yes. that he can pass for yes. it. So That's, in some it ways, it's also scene. meant to deflate him. But it also shows, I suppose, his ignorance in that moment, that he actually his hubris, right? That he yeah. felt so entitled that he could go in and try to trick them and then it doesn't really work. The the last 30 minutes or so of this movie, I have to say, it did maybe deflate a little bit. Only in that, I started to notice that Lawrence becomes a little bit of a more passive character in a film that otherwise he's the character dictating everything that's happening. Nothing is written, right? The movie tells us multiple times. Lawrence himself says that he's the one writing his own future, writing his own destiny. But there are those moments after they get to Damascus where we check in on the Arab Council. It's not through his eyes that we're watching that unfold. We are just taken there and we're spending a lot of time with the British people and something about that disconnection from Lawrence, I think ultimately did take me out of the film a little bit from yeah. at least the, the, just the miraculous first, you know, two thirds right. of the film. I think that's fair. I think the pacing does change for the reasons that you just said, but I also think there's something jarring about seeing a film willing to sideline its main character as part of that deconstruction. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way it's really going to work is if you see him, as you said, becoming more and more broken, becoming less capable of um, being that amazing figure he was before, of other people not regarding him as such. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the deflation we're probably experiencing is that for a good chunk of the film – Everyone looks at him, even the people who are using him, you know, they at least put on a show uh, and look at him as if he is this wonderful figure that he sees himself as in his head. In that last half hour, really no one is looking at him that way anymore. And he's not even looking at himself that way. And so it does kind of have this winding down feel that's very different in terms of tone from from what came before. I know we're going to talk a lot about uh, visual elements Mm -hmm. uh, when we get to our top five list. But I do want to bring up one thing that, of course, Lean is going to have to deal with here. But the different ways he finds to deal with the sand. I mean, there are a lot of desert scenes. And I guess you could say maybe too many. My kids might say there were maybe too many, but he seems to find a different way of filming that sand in almost every one that gives it this sense of being a living, breathing force that you have to contend with. It's not it's not just weather. It's not just landscape. It's something that is going to come after you and going to take you. And there mm-hmm. are some instances that portray it as threatening like that. There are some instances that portray it as beautiful and mesmerizing. Um, but I just love the varied approaches where it's always moving. It's always taking a different shape. And um, it's it's inescapable. There's, there's that one scene, and here it's where it's beautiful, at night where he goes out this is very early on and he's contemplating see you're taking you're taking my shot i was going to go there Oh, that, Beautiful thought, and mesmerizing and threatening at once. Okay. I, we'll, we'll talk about it later. No, go ahead. No, we'll it's, it's it not going to be my top five. I was just going to oh, – okay. I was going to respond by agreeing with you that that's, that's the, the one, moment right? The nighttime one. The nighttime yeah. shot. There's some, somehow he gets the, um, the sand to ripple like waves yes. towards him. And I don't know if it's wind machines. I don't know if it's just getting the right night. But 
it is throughout the the use of of sand here is just it lives up to the reputation it's majestic yeah, yeah that's a great point i didn't think we'd be talking about sand here really on any show but with lawrence of arabia you kind of have to required another moment not a visual one but you're going to hear me say this later that there are no accidents in david lean films nothing happens just by happenstance and i love the fact that in that moment when he is transitioning back to his native country, or at least to the British base there. He's coming from Aqaba, which they've finally taken. He's gone through hell in the desert again to get there. And he and his assistant there, or the, the his attendant who's with him, they finally reach civilization. And there's one person across this canal. And what does that guy yell at them? He says, who are you? Yeah. The British soldier yells, who are you? And that for me, that's the central question oh, for of this sure. film, yeah. right? And at that moment, he is he is stuck between those two worlds I mentioned. And that who are you question for Lawrence in that moment is a loaded one well beyond, you know, I'm, I'm friendly. And a great visual reveal there, too, where they're coming up from this dune. As far as they know, they're still in the middle of nowhere. And then you see, bizarrely, passing over the top of the dune, a ship's mast, a boat. And it's just so so jarring yeah. to it. And, and they've reached the Suez Canal is what it is, where they were going, but they didn't even realize it. And that's our first clue is that great shot. I know we're going to talk about Lawrence of Arabia a little bit more. Spoiler alert, it's going to come up on at least one of our lists in the top five. Any other closing moments or scenes you want to single out, Josh? Uh, we'll save the rest for, for my top five. All right. Lawrence of Arabia is available to rent on most platforms or at your local library, but of course you should just see it on the big screen if you can. If you have seen Lawrence of Arabia already and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. What about historical epics of a more recent vintage? We'll have the results of the Film Spotting poll next, which asks listeners to pick their favorite historical epic of the last 25 years. Then we'll find out how many slots Lawrence of Arabia nabs in this week's Film Spotting Top 5, David Lean Moments. Stay with us. S-I-S-T-E-R-S. Like sisters. We're looking for a man named Warm. He's a little something from our employer. We have enough money to stop for good. Stop what? Killing people. <laughs> yeah, right. That's Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley in the trailer for The Sisters Brothers a new Western from Jacques Godillard, the French director of two really good films, The Beat That My Heart Skipped and A Prophet, also Rust and Bone, Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed, also in that Sisters Brothers cast. Next week on the show, Josh, we are going to review Sisters Brothers, and the top five is TBD. Now, I know our producer, Sam, enlisted the help of our PA, Andy Mitchell. I've been a little out of the loop this week. How is it going? Any good ideas? I think there are some good ideas. Screen duos, top five screen duos, top five make-your-own-Western posses. Okay. This is a little bit that like— That sounds like my speed. Didn't we do the superhero team one recently where we comprised our own film spotting superhero team? Yes. For the Avengers, I think. And this would be similar concept except these filmmakers, performers, 
are ones you'd want in your posse. Okay. Do they have to have previous Western experience or is that part of the fun casting people who you don't normally see in that environment? I don't think we've gotten that far, but I like that distinction. Okay. Well, when you guys decide on the criteria, let me know. I'll try to be ready for that list. Is that where you're leaning right now? I don't, it's, it's the most interesting and also sounds like the most work. So not really. <laughs> <laughs> where I'm sitting tonight, not really. Okay. Well, but you I still do have like the time. idea. To consider it or reconsider, and our listeners have time to weigh in as well. If you like one of those ideas, if you have a better idea, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Josh, you want to put out one last call for any listeners that are in the Twin Cities area? Yeah. They might be able to make it out, hear you do a little talking about movies and a little talking about movies they're prayers. They can be prayers, too, I've read. You haven't read it. No, I haven't. You haven't read the book yet. <laughs> no. That's going to be a banner day for me. <laughs> it's only about, I mean, it's short. It's, it's, it's not even that thick. You could handle it. I am still on the, I, I'm not really calling this the book tour. I'm giving another book talk, let's say, for Movies Are Prayers, and hoping to combine this talk with a film spotting meetup in the Twin Cities. Friday, September 28th, that's the date. I'm going to be at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, breaking down Toy Story as a prayer of confession. And it'd be great to get together with listeners afterwards. Anyone can come to the event. It's open to the public, so you could do that too. And also, it'd be great to hang out. So yeah, we need a place yet. I know, Adam, you have one you need to tell me about that I can look into as a possible meetup location. Mm -hmm. If others have ideas, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Find me on social media, Larson on Film. Give me some suggestions for where to go in St. Paul on Friday, September 28th. So right now, no location set. Nothing set. Listeners can weigh in on that as well. That's right. Okay. Last week on the show, we reviewed Shane Black's The Predator. We also remembered Burt Reynolds with a blind-spotting review of 1972's Deliverance. That means it's a film that neither of us had seen before, and we felt that it was definitely worth catching up with. I have not gotten a call yet, though, from John Borman confirming my JFK assassination Zapruder film theory. Mm -hmm. No. How about the government? Did you get a call from the government yet? I haven't. I haven't gotten a call from them yet either. We also did a little massacre theater. This is where we perform a scene usually from a well-known film and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. Judging from the lack of entries this week, I don't know how well-known this film is that we massacred last week or maybe it had something to do with the acting. And Sam added a little touch to the show last week, to our acting. I, I guess he felt like it needed some bolstering. Oh, it, it needed it. <laughs> it was lovely. I mean, I asked for it. I asked for a little campfire. Yeah. And I and felt like I it. was there. My performance did not help. If you haven't gotten around to listening to that yet, you still have time to get your entry in. Here's a little of what you missed. I really wish I could believe in that stuff. This is real. The cold. <sighs> That's real. They're in my lungs. Those bastards. Out there in the dark. Stalking us. So not many entries so far, Josh, but my favorite comment so far comes to us from Stuart Feldstein. He's in Bondurant, Iowa. Bondurant, Iowa, by the way, the exit I used to take when I was 19 years old in the summertime, and I'd go to my summer job at Adventureland. Fascinating. I know Bondurant well. It's about as big as this studio, Bondurant, (laughs) Iowa is. And we just got this line from Stuart Josh's accent was really no help. You're very correct, Stuart. I was proud of one word 
in that performance. <laughs> One word, I think, nailed it. And I usually do a little bit better than that. If you know what film we massacred, you can email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 24th. 18 pounds. Okay, We're going to have to get close to the poacher's eye. Run out the starboard battery. Aye, sir. Mr. Allen, come up on the wind. On the wind, sir. Blame me alongside a pistol shot. Man, I love that film. Russell Crowe in 2003's Master and Commander. One of the great recent historical epics. We'll find out. Does it even qualify as a historical epic? We actually haven't gotten too much feedback on this. I think it's a classic case of us overthinking it. <laughs> no, Our audience just not caring that, at all. We never overthink it. <laughs> We decided it was a historical epic when we asked you this question a couple weeks back. What is the best non-World War II historical epic of the last 25 years inspired by our discussion this week, looking ahead to Lawrence of Arabia? So we're thinking about big, sweeping spectacles in a historical setting. And, you know, if you've got Leo DiCaprio or Russell Crowe in period clothing, that's going to work, too. The much debated, at least by us, options we gave you were... Mel Gibson's Braveheart, James Cameron's Titanic, Ridley Scott's Gladiator, Peter Weir's Master and Commander, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari II's The Revenant, or you could go off the grid. You could go with other Josh. How did it come out? Nine percent of voters went off the grid. That's where other landed. And then my beloved The Revenant only received 12 percent of the vote with 16 percent of the vote was Titanic. Next up was Braveheart, 18 percent of the vote. And then up here at the top, Ridley Scott's Gladiator came in second place with 20 percent of the vote. But the winner was Master and Commander, 25 percent. Our listeners got it right. As far as I'm concerned, Randall in Portland, Oregon, wrote in its Master and Commander, which is not just a great historical epic, but also one of the all-time great adventure movies. Master and Commander lost Best Picture to Return of the King in 2004. So it goes. Peter Jackson would go on to ring three films out of The Hobbit, and we would never see another adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin series. Modern blockbusters are often unmoored, removed from our world by their CGI spectacle and supernatural plots. Master and Commander reminds you how unnecessary all of that is. Men with no superpowers other than their cunning give chase across the globe, pushing the edge of their wills and the limits of their science. Now, that's a movie. I think he's been reading some Patrick O'Brien recently. Also heard from Tom Schutzer in Westfield, New Jersey. The film's director and star have become problematic in ensuing years, and the historical accuracy of the story has been called into question, if not serious doubt. But for me, no historical epic comes close to matching Mel Gibson's Braveheart for pure cinematic excellence. The Oscar-winning cinematography, direction, and sound may have taken home the hardware, but where the film really excels is the screenplay. It's infinitely quotable and enthralling throughout, but in a dozen or more viewings over the years, that final call of freedom has never failed to leave me bawling my eyes out. I'm sure I did not do that justice. Give me a quote from Braveheart right now, Josh. Give me one quote. Freedom? <laughs> Other than freedom. That's all I got for That's you. a cheat. I have seen it, just not since, what, 95? Tom Morris says, For me, the greatest historical epic is Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. It's got lavish production, massive battles, and acting to match. Oh, I've seen that one too. But yeah, but not... vaguer memories, I think. I haven't seen the extended cut Jim McMahon wrote in with some thoughts on that. I'm guessing not Bears quarterback former Super Bowl champion Jim McMahon will go with some other Jim McMahon. I second the love for Kingdom of Heaven with a condition. I only care about the extended edition. I got about half an hour into the theatrical release before turning off what I considered to be a lot of rushed nonsense. But Scott's director's cut is much more nuanced, layered, and comprehensible. 
I can't put it anywhere near Lawrence of Arabia, but great, but not among the greatest films of all time forever and ever. Amen isn't bad. So Kingdom of Heaven was the most popular other option among those write-in entries and in the comments. Reviewed on this show, I think, by me and Sam a hundred years ago, and we were both pretty underwhelmed by it. But listeners just like Jim have been writing in for now a decade or so telling us how good the director's cut is. I can't imagine, frankly, devoting the time to watching that director's cut. But then I did spend almost four hours watching Lawrence of Arabia. So I'm capable of anything. You're capable. I don't know if those two are comparable. I was fairly mixed myself on on Kingdom of Heaven. And at what point, you know, how often are we going to hear Ridley Scott when he got this extended director's? I mean, some, there's something to be said about doing it right the first time. Fair enough. Hank Worster in Columbus, Ohio says, I think it was Adam who made a comment about the Revenant and the Hugh Glass story being fictional. Hugh Glass being the character portrayed by Leo DiCaprio in the film. Well, I never did reference the character's name because I had no recollection of the character's name, but we are actually going into the corrections file here. Hank says that isn't even close to the truth. Hugh Glass is a real person who was left for dead after being mauled by a bear. Do you remember that? I do. And traveled 200 miles with no equipment from the point of the attack to Fort Kiowa, where the expedition began. He then hunted the two men that abandoned him, though eventually forgiving one and not killing the other because he had enlisted in the army. While parts of the film are fictionalized, the sun, glasses, active vengeance, the story and the man are very much real. I would highly recommend at least giving the Wikipedia article a gander. He's one of the most famous explorers of the West along the lines of Jim Bridger. Truly a fascinating character. How much do you know about Jim Bridger, Adam? <laughs> Zero. You've got a lot of Wikipedia to do. I do. One gonna, more comment. I'm going to get to that now. One more comment here from Lisa N. in Ayer, Massachusetts. Although Master and Commander is by several leagues far superior than all the other entries on this list, I have to say I was disappointed when I saw the options. Only one of these films really stands the test of time. The other films are popular box office hits, but are not what I would call great historical epics. Instead, you should have considered movies like 1998's Elizabeth or 2012's Lincoln, excellent biopics of amazing leaders who held their countries together during extremely turbulent times. Or how about heart-wrenching sagas of our country's shameful past, like 2013's 12 Years a Slave and 2007's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee? Even 2016's Lost City of Z would have been a better option, a thoughtful exploration of the old and new worlds coming together in mysterious and violent ways. Any of those would have gotten my vote before any of the entries on this list. So did we consult Lisa before forming this week's poll question? That was exactly going through my mind as I read this. Lisa, of course is correct, or she is certainly not wrong, but we were, in our defense, we were thinking more along the lines of Lawrence and more sort of action-adventure epics. I'm not sure any of those quite qualify. I mean, the rhetoric is stirring in Lincoln, but I don't know that it's it's quite up to the level of some of the stuff we see from David Lean and those other filmmakers. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you to everyone who left a comment and voted in that poll. That brings us to our latest doomed-to-be controversially worded poll question. I think at this point we should just say misguidedly worded, right? <laughs> just admit it up front. A couple weeks from now, we'll have a review of Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born starring Cooper and Lady Gaga. We have both seen this film. Just came from it. Can't say anything. But we've seen it. That's that's all we're going to say. The question tying in with that film and that review is, what is the best original musical drama? So we're not talking musical strictly, but dramas that have a heavy musical element. Is that is that where oh, Sam's geez. going? Here we I go. I kind of stayed out Here of this. Here we go. <laughs> so 
you know, did you guys parse this? I, I, I just argued for clear language. So let's, let's just read it and okay. not give any of the why caveats. Don't you, why don't okay. you do it? What is the best original music drama, no biopics, since the last Star is Born? In 1976. Yeah, that one starred Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand. Do you ever think we will ask a poll question again where there isn't some kind of disclaimer or some caveat like no biopics? Just a a straightforwardly worded one? Apparently not. So the choices, Josh, do the honors in chronological order. I think think this is a tough one. We have Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, 2000, Craig Brewer's Hustle and Flow, John Carney's Once, the Coen Brothers, Inside Lewin Davis, Lenny Abrahamson's Frank, and John Carney's Sing Street. You you were involved in this to some degree. That's the only reason there are two Carney I, films on I this list. I may have jumped in at the end <laughs> yeah. and, and threw in a little Sing Street. Might I just add, two John Carney films need to be on this list. Yeah. That was your suggestion. All right, yeah, fine. We'll see, how, we'll see how they fare. We have other, of course, is another option. Yeah, all that jazz, ineligible because... You could argue it skirts the biopic rule there, but it's close enough to a biopic. Joe Gideon there, the character's name, a stand-in for Bob Fosse. But this is a really tough one because, let's see, we gave you two, four, six options and other. And I love all six of these films. Maybe I love five of them. I respect Frank. I think Frank is a good movie. Got a very positive review here on the show. But those other five, I adore those films. And... It's really stunning here, Josh, that I'm going to go against Sing Street. I'm going against Sing Street because that's how good Inside Lewin Davis is. Yeah, I I could have predicted you'd go for Inside Lewin Davis, which I like as well, not as much as you. My clear favorite here of these is Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. I'm not— It's great. —a von Trier disciple. I never know which way I'm going to go with him, but that one— I do love It Gets My Vote Here. Okay. And I can't argue with that because I love the film as well. We would love to hear what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you vote and leave a comment, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Let's get back to David Lean when we return and try to narrow down his vast career to only a handful of spectacular moments. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. We wanted to take a quick moment to acknowledge our listeners who have donated some of their hard-earned money our way in support of the show, whether it's a $2, $5, or $10 monthly subscription or a donation of any other size. We do appreciate it, and we want to acknowledge one new donor this week who sent us this nice note, John Turner in Las Vegas. My amazing girlfriend of two years and I share a love of movies, but I'm the film snob who follows plenty of critics and news from festivals, collects criterions, and listens to your podcast incessantly, while she's generally into mainstream fare, but very open-minded. I love introducing her to some of my favorite directors and works of art, but I try to be careful not to inundate her with too much Kiarostami, Malik, Hanukkah, and Linklater all at once. Mulholland Drive, Boyhood, and Winter Sleep, despite her being Turkish, in particular spring to mind as sadly not going over well with her. 
I'd been wanting to introduce her to the Before trilogy for years, but could never find the right time. After your recent Ethan Hawke show, though, I knew I couldn't wait much longer to revisit these beautiful films, and I found a free evening with her to go for it. I told her I wanted to share one of my favorite romantic comedies, with the emphasis on romance, with her, and our trip to Vienna began. To my delight, she absolutely loved it. She was, however, surprised it ended when it did, pining for a more typical Hollywood ending, saying it was so messed up that she wouldn't know if Jesse and Celine would ever see each other again. I had anticipated this and played along, letting her dwell on it a few minutes before I sprung it on her that they made a sequel nine years later. Her shock and delight produced one of the brightest smiles I've ever seen, and she couldn't wait to dive in. Needless to say, I repeated the process after Before Sunset, and she was absolutely floored to learn there was a third. We watched all three that night. She adored them all, and they sparked tons of great conversation. I myself hadn't seen them since Before Midnight came out, and they were even better than I remembered, especially Before Midnight, which I had felt before was a clear, weaker film than the others. But now, it just might be my favorite. Anyway, longtime listener here who just made a long overdue donation. Thank you for the continued numerous hours of listening pleasure and inspiration. What a great story with a happy ending there from John because it would be terrible if he had watched those films with his lovely girlfriend. She sounds lovely anyway, putting up with Joe's antics there. What if she didn't like Before Sunrise? I think he would have been crushed. I mean, the whole relationship would it be called have, into question. It might have been it over. It might have ended that night. Crisis averted. Thank you, John, for that note. Thank you for the donation as well. We do also want to say thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate or review us over at iTunes. And actually, Sam did paste in here four recent reviews, five-star reviews from Apple Podcasts. We are not going to bore you with this praise, but one I did like quite a bit came to us from someone named I.M. Faust, who says, a mentor slash friend introduced me to film spotting about 12 years ago, just after they'd changed their name from Cinecast. I liked them then, but it didn't fully click with me at the time, as I don't think I knew how to process film and cinema with any type of critical eye. Now, 12 years later, it's the only podcast I can say I listen to faithfully. It took 12 years for I am Faust to get on board with film spotting fully. That's all right. You know what? We'll take it. We were still here for him. Better late than never. Thank you again to everyone who supports the show, however you support the show. There's your train. Yes. You mustn't miss it. No. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing at all, really. It's been so very nice. I've enjoyed my afternoon enormously. I'm so glad. So have I. I apologize for boring you with long medical words. I feel dull and stupid not to be able to understand more. Shall I see you again? It's the other platform, isn't it? You have to run. Don't bother about me. Mine's not due for a few minutes. Shall I see you again? Yes, of course. Perhaps we'll come out to catch with one Sunday. It's rather far, I know, but we should be delighted. Please. Please. What is it? Next Thursday. The same time. Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson in a scene from, it says here in my notes that Sam provided maybe the greatest movie ever, Brief Encounter. And Sam, as usual, probably isn't wrong. He fell hard for this one, didn't Oh, yes. He? I and, did too. And we both did. This movie is a masterpiece. We'll see if it just happens to come up in this week's top five. David Lean moments, Brief Encounter, would fall on the non-epic side of the filmography from 19. 19- 45. So Brief Encounter was homework for you, Josh, and very pleasant homework. And you were a busy boy. You watched a lot of lean that you hadn't seen before in preparation for this top five. Did it pay off? Was it rewarding for you? And 
Did you get some good picks out of it? Yeah, it was absolutely rewarding. I enjoyed everything I saw. I don't think I have a pick from each movie I watched, but that's okay. There were other pleasures that I got out of them, and I'm still only like at 50% for his filmography, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid. So by no means an expert, uh, but I do feel like I was able to squeeze in a little bit of a mini marathon here. All right, get us started. You're number five. My number five comes from one of the films that I did watch for the first time, and it's Oliver Twist. I'm going with a shot of the London cityscape. This is Lean's second Charles Dickens adaptation, came right after Great Expectations, and I was surprised to find there's a lot of silent movie imagery in it, even though obviously it's not a silent film. It has striking, meaning-rich black-and-white compositions throughout. Uh, It's the story, of course, of the orphan Oliver, played here by John Howard Davies, who eventually falls in with a band of pickpockets in Victorian London, and that's where my image can be found. There are probably others besides Lean that I should really credit for this shot in the set design and the art departments, but I ran out of time before I could really do thorough research in terms of how this image was achieved. But it certainly looks to be a combination of actual sets and painted background. Basically, uh, the images of two rows of brick tenement buildings that just go on and on and on deeper into the frame. And then every so often, the top floors of these buildings are connected by a bridge. So there's a real sense of depth to the shot. And the buildings even have personality. They're leaning over kind of as if they have have bad backs. And then anchoring this way in the background is St. Paul's Cathedral. So Lean returns to this a couple of times in the film, but the first time we see it is when the Artful Dodger is leading Oliver over one of those bridges. You see their silhouettes, the Dodger's big top hat and cape, and they're negotiating their way through all these stairways and byways that lead to where the pickpockets hide out. On Twitter, a listener, Benjamin James, he's underscore Benjamin James, he had a great way of describing Lean's use of the city in Oliver Twist. He said, London as a gothic, malevolent creature. I'm not sure if he was thinking of this exact shot, but it's certainly fitting for the film and I think for this image as well. A great pick. I'm guessing my number five, though, is a little bit more well-known to film spotting listeners, even if they've never seen the film. The film is the one we discussed earlier in the show, Lawrence of Arabia. I'm coming out of the gate hot here, Josh. All right. See what I did there. It is the famous match cut on the match, on the flame. In Lawrence, the line of dialogue, a funny sense of fun we referenced at the top of the show. Because those transitions are so good, I felt like I had to transition into my list with one of them, and not just one of them, maybe the one. And sometimes, Josh, the obvious choices, I know with our top fives, we try to go off the beaten path and not go with the cliche picks. But you know what? Sometimes they're cliche for a reason. Yeah, I've and got rather, one too, so yeah. don't feel bad about and it. And rather than avoiding them, you need to make room. If anything, the only crime I've committed is I've put it at number five. This is such a remarkable cut, and I'm actually going to rely on a couple other people to help explain why. It is the moment with Dryden, Claude Rains, talking to Lawrence as he is about giddily to embark on his first journey out into the desert. He says it's a burning, fiery furnace, and Lawrence says no, it's going to be fun. The camera then zooms in on Lawrence's face, on Peter O'Toole. He's staring at the flame. He's in profile. The match, just the tip of it is burning, and then after a few seconds, Lawrence blows it out. Immediately, the scene cuts to the sun 
rising over the desert. We go from that orangish red hue of the flame on the match to that orangish red hue of the sun coming up there in the desert. And Ann V. Coates, who was the editor of this film, she edited The Elephant Man as well, Aaron Brockovich. She just died at the age of 92 this past May. And the Washington Post wrote a story about her and one of the most famous cuts in movie history. And Michael Jablow, who's the head of the editing discipline at AFI, said this about it. It makes the jump from the small story of Lawrence, a small bureaucrat, to the mythic Lawrence of Arabia. It's not just that it's a good cut, but that it was brilliant storytelling, echoing, of course, what I said earlier in the show. It's a combination of extremes, the combination of this extreme close-up of the flame on the match to the sun coming up over the horizon, which jumped from the extreme micro to the extreme macro. I can't remember anyone else who had quite done something like that before. And they talk about this in the article. I found the clip on YouTube too. Steven Spielberg basically credits that moment, seeing this film at age 15, for inspiring his film career. He didn't understand it in the moment, but just seeing what was done and that cut was something that he said, quote, blew me away. And I love in the article that Ann Coates explains it all started or it all happened by accident because the script actually called for a dissolve. And this is one of the things I was wondering, is how many of these were carefully plotted out these transitions, at least in the case of this one. There are some certainly that had to be. In the case of this one, it was an accident. It was meant to be a dissolve. But back in the day, of course, of splicing together film and everything that went with it and having to create that effect by hand and ordering extra negatives of the film, when they first spliced it together, they just put the cuts right up against each other. And Coates explained, when we watched the footage in the theater, we saw it as a direct cut. David and I both thought, wow, that's really interesting. So we decided to nibble at it, taking a few frames off here and there. David said, that's a fabulous cut. It's not quite perfect. Take it away and make it perfect. And I literally took two frames off, and that's the way it is today. If I had been working digitally, I would have never seen those two shots cut together like that. She closes, I like to think we would have gotten the idea anyway, but another director would not necessarily have seen it or liked it. Luckily, David and I thought alike. So the moment visually is incredible, but the sound, of course, is such a key part of it, cutting on the blowing out of the match. And it's also on this list, Josh, because frankly, you could pick five different moments, at least you could pick 15 different moments, at least of Peter O'Toole's face from Lawrence of Arabia and call that your five favorite David Lean shots. I guess I also like the cheekiness of the fact that it's a match cut literally on a match. Yes, of course. As you were talking, I was thinking exactly that. I'm surprised this wasn't a dissolve, and I'll explain why later with Mm -hmm. another one of my picks. But this is also why, as I said in our Arabia review, it feels so modern is because a dissolve would have felt like something from an earlier era. And this clearly is not. It's also the AFI editor described that you just quoted. I think uh, he described it as a combination of extremes, right? One of the extremes that he didn't mention that I love about this moment is the difference between the fast cut, the instant cut, the quick blowing out of the match, and then the slow sunrise. Mm -hmm. It's like the two opposite elements of pacing smashed together there that works beautifully. So honorable mention for me, obviously. At number four, I am going to go with a landscape shot. Shockingly, but I don't think it's 
of the kind that we usually think of when it comes to lean. It's not of natural grandeur or natural beauty. I'm going with a moment from Dr. Zhivago. This is on a boxcar train when the passengers who are fleeing Moscow open the doors and are shocked by a vision of apocalypse. When we did our blind spotting review of Lean's 1965 period romance, Adam, I talked about how what especially struck me, what surprised me, was how much Dr. Zhivago registered as an account of a world and a way of life just completely come undone. And that would be of Russia around the time of World War I and the Russian Revolution. This is a recurring thread throughout the movie, but it's especially potent in this image. This is where Zhivago, played by Omar Sharif, and his family are squeezed into an overcrowded boxcar. They're leaving a tattered Moscow behind, and after journeying for a while, the train slows and the doors open, revealing this village that's been inexplicably ravaged. They see the aftermath here. Houses are burned down. Women are running in all directions in a panic. There are cows or horses dead laying in the snow. It's like something out of a dystopian it science is. fiction movie, maybe or maybe Tarkovsky. Yeah, it's that's exactly what I was thinking as of. well. Mm-hmm. It really, what it did for me is, it's another one of those moments that really puts the central romance that I think a lot of us have foremost in our mind when we think of Doctor Zhivago between Sharif and Julie Christie. It puts that in stark perspective with the larger story that's at play here. So when I think of Zhivago, I think of this moment. That's why I got it at number four. Yeah, it's a fantastic choice. It was a while ago that we saw Dr. Shivago, and yet I can see that image so clearly in my head. My number four comes from The Bridge on the River Kwai, and it is the moment where Colonel Nicholson, played by Alec Guinness, drops his swagger stick. And I think I went with this here, Josh, partly because I wanted to show that not every moment for this list, not every great David Lean moment has to be a bravura camera move or a fancy edit. Sometimes it's just about taking what's on the page and blocking it a certain way. And I think it also reinforces what I said at the top of the show during our Lawrence of Arabia conversation, that there are no accidents in David Lean movies. Gestures, actions, conscious or unconscious, they matter. They inform. They tell us something about the character and the character's psychology. And this is a moment that comes right before the finale of The Bridge on the River Kwai, the bridge that Colonel Nicholson has been obsessively devoted to building and building perfectly, even though it's ultimately going to benefit the war effort of those who are keeping him and his men captive. He's sitting there on the bridge, and he's reflecting on his career, and he's talking to Colonel Saito, the commandant of the prison camp, and he's thinking about his life as a soldier and the choices he's made. I've been thinking. Tomorrow it will be 28 years to the day that I've been in the service. 28 years in peace and war. I don't suppose I've been at home more than 10 months in all that time. Still, it's been a good life. I love India. I wouldn't have had it any other way. But there are times... Suddenly you realize you're nearer the end than the beginning. And you wonder... You ask yourself... What the sum total of your life represents. So in this kind of wistful, philosophical monologue, at one point, Nicholson drops 
the stick that he's carrying. And if you Google it, it is referred to as a swagger stick or a staff of authority. And we see Nicholson carrying this early in the film when he goes to the Japanese commandant Saito and he tells him about the Geneva conventions. He stands up to him and he says that officers aren't going to be required to perform manual labor. And what does Saito do? He snaps the stick in half saying, no, I'm in command. So he clearly breaks that as a symbol to show that he's the one with the upper hand here. And then later Nicholson gets permission to resume his command of the prisoners and build the bridge the way he wants to build it. And at this point, he's now replaced his original stick with a tree branch that's about the exact same length. So he's regained his authority there. And there we are at the end, as I said, when the bridge is completed, he drops it in the river. The stick is a tell. It reveals how we as viewers are supposed to see Nicholson and how much authority to bestow upon him when he is truly representing his men and representing his country, and he has the upper hand on Saito as he does at the beginning of the film, he has that stick. And as I said, Saito then symbolically breaks it. When Nicholson isn't representing his men and his country, when he symbolically loses his grasp on it, well, he's lost that authority, that command, and he's about to show just how much he succumbed to the madness of this whole endeavor shortly after this moment. That's when the stick falls and foreshadows all of that. And we get another little bit of cheekiness here, Josh. Do you remember what line Nicholson utters the moment after he drops the stick in the water? No. Blast. <laughs> if you know how the bridge on the River Kwai ends... You probably get the joke there. One of our listeners who certainly got the joke, Henrik Hansen, calling in once again, hearing from Henrik. He is chiming in from Yalding in Kent, UK, his thoughts on one of his favorite David Lean moments. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent, UK. I'm so pleased you're doing David Lean movies. He was a master all the way back to uh, Great Expectations, which is so atmospheric. And um, even into the 80s, uh, he made Passage to India, an incredible career. But his greatest movie was The Bridge on the River Kwai, 1957. And his best scene is the climactic scene. I'm not going to spoil it. It's, it is so perfect. You need to go now and watch the movie. But uh, suffice to say, it is the culmination of the conflict between the three characters. The Japanese colonel, played by Sasu Hawakawa, who needs the bridge, the, the bridge of the title, Bridge on the River Kwai. The British colonel, Alec Guinness, who builds the bridge for very interesting reasons. And the American commander, played by William Holden, who needs to blow it up. And the final scene brings them all together. It pays off all the time you've spent with these characters. And you understand them. You understand their motivations and why they each are doing what they're doing. And the final scene has a, has a tragic inevitability to it, but it's perfect, and it's purely cinematic, and it reveals character, and I want to go watch the movie again, so thank you. I really appreciate the way that the, the two of you and your predecessors champion quality film so that we can you know, find the good stuff and really savor it and appreciate it. Thanks very much for your time.
Thanks to Henrik for sharing that. Bridge on the River Kwai also inspired this note from Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. He's referencing the same scene here. The actors display such a storm of emotions as everything comes to a head. Grit, anguish, determination, anger, surprise, rage. It's all there. But it's in the way that Lean shoots Holden splashing and crawling his way toward Guinness, with a bridge in deep focus far off in the background. And Guinness, with his back turned to us, but tucked to the right of the frame, The bridge goes out of view, but we never lose sense of location or depth. And then there's this subtle dip of the camera. It zooms past Guinness and into the water to just about kiss Holden for that line, you. So I do have my number three pick from the bridge on the River Kwai. It's not exactly that scene. Quite a bit earlier, it's Nicholson giving the side eye to Colonel Saito. So it's very much in line with the dynamic that you especially were talking about, Adam. I do think one way to frame this movie is as a battle of wills between Alec Guinness's Nicholson and Colonel Saito, played by Sasue Hayakawa. The mind games start right away as Nicholson marches his men into the camp, and this is where my moment comes from. They're in perfect British order. They're even cheerily whistling Colonel Bogey March. And then once they're all lined up in formation, Nicholson stands before them in that position of authority, as you described, perfectly aware that Saito has come out of his hut, his commanding hut, from behind to watch them all. And then Lean and Guinness give us this great moment where Nicholson turns his head ever so slightly, letting us know and letting Saito know that he knows Saito is there. Mm -hmm. But then he proceeds with the formation anyway, as if he wasn't there at all. So this shot is from the shoulders up about, but thanks to the wide cinemascope frame here, we can still see the British soldiers marching in place in the background, just emphasizing and bolstering Nicholson's authority. So there's lots of great widescreen stuff in Bridge on the River Kwai, um, especially of the way it allows us to get the full expanse of that bridge, some wonderful landscape stuff. But I'm going to go with a face for my number three mm-hmm. pick and kind of drill down here of Nicholson just giving that slight backwards glance. Yeah, such a great moment. And both of us going with relatively subtle lean moments from Bridge on the River Kwai. For my number three, I'm going to go with a scene from Dr. Shivago that is a little more ostentatious, and it's one that starts with another great transition. The opening in this movie, we've got that framing device with Alec Guinness as a KGB lieutenant general, and he's questioning a young woman who he believes might be his niece, the daughter of Omar Sharif's Yuri and Julie Christie's Laura, the central couple here in Dr. Shivago, and we go from a close-up of her face looking at the camera, and we jump back to the past, this incredible landscape, and we get moments just like this as the caravan moves across the desert in Lawrence of Arabia, too, but here it's snow-capped mountains, this huge valley below, and a funeral procession in the bottom corner of the frame moving left to right. I could see very easily watching this on a big screen and not even notice that they're there in the bottom. That's how big the frame is, how big the landscape is. And we watch them move from left to right for a good 25 seconds. I just love Lean's use of scale and the insignificance, seemingly, of this procession against the expanse and the grandeur of nature. But then we get the significance of the moment to the young Yuri. This is the burial of his mother who has died. And we get his point of view as he approaches the hole in the ground, almost like it's his death, almost like he's the one going into the hole. And there's just such ominousness and dread hanging over that. And the sound is so intricate here and wonderful. We have hunting singing, 
we hear the priest's words. It's a Russian Orthodox service. Then a swelling of music that stops. And we get these dramatic, haunting bursts of music intertwined with sounds of people wailing. And Lean takes these natural sounds and he heightens them to an unnatural volume. So the wind, the coffin being nailed shut and lowered into the ground, the dirt crashing down on top of the coffin. This is this overwhelming sensory experience. Then the moment, my moment here, a close-up of Yuri's mournful face looking down and Lean cuts to inside the coffin with Yuri's mother. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. In profile, for about five seconds, the camera just sits in the coffin with her and then goes back. We cut back to a close-up of Yuri. This moment links them psychologically. It certainly amplifies his connection to her and his sense of loss, makes us feel eerily uncomfortable as well. And I think the most startling thing about the scene is that other than a quiet tinkling of music... There's no sound inside the coffin. The wind, that wailing, the dirt, everything I mentioned that was amped up to an unnatural volume, it all disappears inside the coffin. So physically, mother and son are close to each other. He's standing right above her, but they, of course, no longer occupy the same plane at all. And this is a film that covers a span of time between, I think, 1905, the Russian Revolution, up to World War II. We see a lot of turbulent times. He's about to embark on a turbulent life. And in that moment, she's at complete peace. And those worldly concerns are no longer her concern. That's true. It's awfully claustrophobic as well, though, for those, especially when those audio elements disappear. And when you describe that scene, as soon as you start, I can hear the wind as well, because that really, that really sticks with you. All right. For my number two, Here's my cliche pick, also coming from Lawrence of Arabia. It's not the match, match cut, but it is Omar Sharif's entrance at the well. I mean, having just experienced this again on 70 millimeter, no less, I can't resist picking one of the most enigmatic, mystical, spacious, and suspenseful character entrances in movie history. It pulls all of that off. It comes fairly on in Lawrence when Peter O'Toole's title character and his guide, they've stopped at this remote well for a drink. And then off in the distance, and I mean, like, it seems like it's a continent away, given the vastness of the frame here, we see what could be a figure or it could be just a mirage. So we could break down this entire scene at the three or four minutes, I think, mm-hmm. that go on before he actually appears. But I'm going to try to stay specific here, and I'm going to highlight the one moment for its composition. Uh, and because I think it's also the high suspense point of this scene. Um, by now, we know that there is a figure approaching, and so Lawrence moves closer to his guide, kind of this instinctual move towards safety, towards the guy who might know what's going on here. And I love, talk about nothing being unplanned in a lean movie. I wonder if this was, did you notice that Lawrence stumbles a little bit because yeah. he's, he can't take his eyes off this figure. So he doesn't notice a, a little rock or something there That's that right. causes him to stumble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a beautiful touch. And it also brings him by stumbling like that. It brings him perfectly on screen left, the guide you have on screen, right. And then right in the middle, following this line that lean had painted in the desert 
painted a line so your eye would follow it down is Sharif's black-robed figure who's coming inevitably closer. On Twitter, listener Kurt Wirthmuller, he's at K. Wirthmuller, he had this to say about it. The sense of light and space as his figure gradually materializes out of the shimmering heat is leanish perfection. I think that's right on. The cinematographer here is Freddie Young, who manages plenty of other shots I could consider from this movie. Obviously, I have a few more honorable mentions, but this is the one that had to go on the list for me. If you haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, it's worth seeing just for that scene. Oh, yeah, it stands on its own as a, a, a short film. Yeah. A suspenseful short film. It so, really does. Yeah, and check it out. If you needed any more reasons to see Lawrence, I'm going to go back to it for my number two. I was going to call this moment Lawrence's sunbaked stroll, but I actually really like how Movie Clips describes it, a prophet's shadow. This is Lawrence at the height of his powers, but also where we start to see just how drastically he's changed as a person. This is really the beginning of his downfall, I think. It's the second scene post-intermission. He's leading a successful raid, derailing a Turkish train. And you see his humanity that's always been such a key part of who Lawrence was in the way he calls for the men to stop firing. They just keep unloading bullets on this train long after the train has been stopped and it looks like most people, if not everyone on board, is dead. But then we watch him, I love this moment, walk right by who looks to be basically just like a porter, certainly not a soldier, just someone who is working on board the train. Lawrence rounds the corner and we see this porter just looking stunned and heading out into the desert all alone. And in that moment, Lawrence doesn't even hesitate, doesn't hesitate for a moment to consider helping this man. He walks right on by. The American reporter who's following them asks him if he can take his picture. This is just a few moments later. And Lawrence says yes, but he doesn't just pose right there for the picture. No, he, with all the men cheering him on, ascends the train triumphantly. And we get two exquisite moments. Lean shows O'Toole striding across the top of the train by shooting his shadow as it moves across the sand. The shadow is moving right to left, as do the men who are following him. We see them, the actual men, not their shadow, following Lawrence. And at once, it makes him a mythical figure, right? Indeed, like some kind of prophet who they are following. But I do think it's worth pointing out that just a few moments before, he got shot at and suffered this wound on his shoulder. He basically stares death right in the eye. He thinks he's invincible. In this moment, this is Lawrence thinking he truly is a god, that that man had him dead to rights and couldn't kill him and fired other bullets at him and didn't hit him. He's buying into the notion that he is some kind of Christ figure, some kind of martyr, some kind of prophet in this moment. And so I think we have Lean maybe slyly at once pumping up the mythology, but also slightly undercutting him a bit, too, by the fact that we are looking at his shadow. He is, after all, going to be proven to be a false prophet. I think the shadow reflects that. But then Lean also can't resist the glory of the moment, and he cuts from the shadow to Lawrence in that flowing white robe, not just baked in the sun, but just, you remember, he's actually blocking the sun. He's like the moon, right? It's an eclipse. It's a Lawrence eclipse. And he's not a shadow anymore, but he's almost silhouetted against that sky as he blocks the sun. And that's how the men in this moment see him. That's how he sees himself as this omnipotent being, a godlike figure that can block the sun. And Lean and his cinematographer, Freddie Young, capture it so beautifully, at least the image 
of that omnipotence, even if it is just an image. There's also a great detail in that sequence when he's strolling across the top of the train. We get a shot just of his feet and the way he has to move around certain parts that are sticking up yeah. on the train. It's like a ballet performance. Yeah. It goes back to what I was saying in the review about him always being a performer. Here, the, the train is serving as his stage. Oh, yeah. So, 100%. Yeah, that, that's a really good one. All right. I think we're already at our number one. So for mine, I am going with what I'm going to maintain. I still need to see about half his films, but I'm going to maintain it's one of Lean's best because it is an absolute masterpiece. It's Brief Encounter. And my choice from this picture is Laura dissolving back to reality. So a little bit of the story here. This is Lean's second adaptation of a Noel Coward play after Blythe Spirit. And it's about a short-lived affair between a housewife and doctor who meet at a train station. Then they have a series of rushed rendezvous there. The housewife is played by Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard is the doctor. They're both terrific. So there's this moment where they're walking through the tunnel underneath the station platforms, and they pause for this furtive but passionate kiss. Lean cinematographer here is Robert Krasker, and it really gives this a gorgeous, it's like a romantic noir lighting scheme in this sequence. Other passengers come around the corner, and so they quickly separate and proceed on their way. So as they're gliding down this dark corridor, their image begins to fade in the top left corner of the screen, while in the bottom right, the figure of Laura sitting in a chair across from her husband at home slowly materializes. And this creates a wondrous instant where the illicit couple is walking in silhouette and the wife is positioned so it looks like she's in a movie theater mm -hmm. watching them projected in her own home. Eventually, they fade away entirely. And who takes their place? her husband, of course, and then he offers these obliviously heartbreaking words to her. You are miles away. He has no idea how right he was, yeah. right? Um, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect movie, but I do believe in perfect movie moments, yeah. and I think this is one of them. So Laura dissolving back to reality in Brief Encounter. Well, I'm going to try to give you another one from Brief Encounter for my number one. Because I believe it's, you can. It's the sister scene to that scene. Okay. And I'm going to keep... The train theme going here, if you notice, we go back to Bridge on the River Kwai. We have Lawrence of Arabia and my number two. We could have gone with any number of the train sequences from Dr. Shivago. We could have filled an entire top five, I'm sure, with great David Lean train moments. And this is, though, another dissolve back to reality, except it's not a dissolve. It's another one of these great cuts, a great, subtle David Lean transition. And I love how sneaky and how subtle they can be. Even more subtle, I would say, than the match cut that I referenced in Lawrence of Arabia going to the desert sun. This is from the ending of the film. It's the coda to one of the most ostentatious sequences in the movie. There are multiple moments within this larger scene that could have made my list. It's where Alec has departed. Their last few minutes together in the refreshment room of the station are ruined by the arrival of one of her friends. And we have the sound of the train approaching and Lean slowly pushes in and tilts the angle of the camera, reflecting her own sense of disorientation. She runs out to the edge of the platform. She ponders suicide in this moment. The wind from the train blows her hair. Everything about the look on her face and the light from the train cars flashing against it as the camera still very slowly is dreamily moving. It's all stunning. And yet those aren't my moments, Josh. After all of that, 
She walks back inside. She rests her body against the back of the door. And here Lean and his editor, Jack Harris, could do any number of things to get her back home to her husband in the next scene. They could cut to an establishing shot of her house and show her walk in. Or they could go from the outside establishing shot of the house to an inside one of her sitting there. What do they do? They cut right from the long shot of her whole body against the door of that refreshment room to a close-up as she's now sitting in a chair in her living room. The music plays right through the transition. So your instinct as a viewer, visually taking in that moment, is to assume that the cut is just a spatial one. We've gone from the long shot to a close-up in the same space and not think of it as a temporal one, but that's exactly what it is. Only as then the camera pulls back slowly do you realize that her coat is off and now she is sitting in a completely different room. Laura. Yes, dear. Whatever your dream was, it wasn't a very happy one, was it? It's just such efficient filmmaking. Nothing superficial, nothing extraneous. The affair is over. Yeah. This encounter is over. Like that, she's back to her old life. With one cut, it underlines just how fleeting it all was, almost as if it had maybe all been a daydream with her sitting there in her armchair across from her husband. Yeah, it's great. And that's why the harshness of that technique works there as opposed to using a dissolve earlier. And and my pick, of course, was the dissolve I was thinking of um, when I referenced how the Lawrence one should have been a dissolve, felt like it should have been a dissolve, but that harsh cut works really well. And And interesting that your pick is much earlier in his career already using that technique. With all the homework you did, Josh, I'm guessing you have at least one or two more honorable mentions. Let's stick with Brief Encounter. The shot of her looking out the window at night and seeing her own reflection, and then here becomes a dissolve of her fantasies of what their life together might be like. Great expectations. If you're going to go with one from there, it's probably an early image of the marshes, those haunting, ghostly marshes that start that story off. That's what I think of now, even when the book comes to mind. I think of Lean's Hmm. shot there. Bridge on the River Kwai, I thought about the sequence where the bats come exploding out of the trees. It's something that could be in a nature documentary, but just is so atmospheric as well. And then you mentioned when you said shadow from Lawrence of Arabia, I thought at first you were going to go with that moment where I think it's possibly his first trip back because he's wearing the robe again Mm -hmm. and he's very confident. uh, He's back at headquarters and he leaves an office with new command and the lighting coming from the hallway projects so that as he leaves, his shadow remains and fills the hallway Mm. like he's this mythical figure. And what I love about it is it's great for that moment, but I think it might be the same scene or maybe it's a few sequences later, but it's the same room. A different officer leaves and the lighting is purposefully changed so that his shadow is minuscule. No, it's not there. He's ordinary to (laughs) Lawrence's extraordinary. I love that. Those are our top five David Lean moments. We would love to hear your picks or any other thoughts about the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know what is the best original non-biopic musical drama since 1976. That's when the last Star is Born was in theaters. If you haven't already, we also ask that you check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. 
out in wide release this weekend. Fahrenheit 11.9, Michael Moore takes on the Trump era. The house with a clock in its walls. A young orphan aids his magical uncle in locating a clock with the power to bring about the end of the world. It's based on the popular YA book. It stars Jack Black and Kate Blanchett. Life itself also out wide from This Is Us creator Dan Fogelman with Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde as a couple whose life together, quote, creates reverberations that echo over continents and through lifetimes. Josh, did you happen to see the responses to life itself that were flowing out of its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. No, but the way you set that up, I'm guessing not good. Was there some some dread in my voice? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was not pretty. Unfortunate. Film Twitter not taking kindly to life itself, but you can see for yourself out in limited release here in Chicago opening Ethan Hawke's Blaze. If you see it and haven't had a chance yet, please go back into the Film Spotting archive and check out my conversation with the film's director, Ethan Hawke. Also out, Lizzie with Chloe Sevigny as Lizzie Borden and Kristen Stewart as the Borden's maid. Next week on the show, we will talk about The Sisters Brothers. I can't wait to see this movie based on the trailer. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley in that Western, and we're going to share a top five list that is to be decided. It might be a case where we make our own Western posse. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach a few new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.